You okay. are not Orson Welles. Don't act like him, all right? So shove it up your ass. Let's just start, will you? All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Yippee-ki-yay, mother... Welcome to Yippie Kaye Mother Podcast Classic. I'm Ralph Quattrucci. I'm Sean Paul Murphy. I'm Deborah Murphy. I'm John Quattrucci. I'm Chris Coker. And I'm looking forward to finding out what new ground we will break today on Citizen Kane and, of course, on Paul Masson Champagne. Well, no wine before will, it's time. We'll sell no. Oh, that's right. He was a big wine seller. I forgot. Yes, we're going to. This is another film school edition of Yippie Kaye Mother Podcast. Well, and you I chose it, it Ralph, so you don't get I to, chose it. It's yeah. called Citizen Kane. I don't know if anybody has heard of this film or anybody's ever talked about this film, but we're going to do that. But before we do that, let's do a little round of, oh, by the way, that's what the deep focus shot here is. Let's make that clear. You guys are all in black and white as well, just to show a little honor for this. Our film. audience is very sophisticated. I think they would have figured that out. Well, they're going to. Do you have Greg no Colin down there with you? Uh, he shot. He lit this for us, and he's uh, he's actually back there against the wall. Great. Good job. All right, so uh, let's do a round of what you watch, Drew. What do you watch this week? Well, I watched uh, two people that I really like die. Uh, one is Nichelle Nichols. Um, uh, she, I mean, I grew up watching Star Trek, and she was a, a big part of that world. So that made me sad. And then Bernard Cribbins died at ninety three, and he's acting in uh, England for nine hundred years. Mostly, I fell in love with him on Doctor Who. He played uh, the grandfather of one of the Doctor's companions in one of the most simultaneously tragic and heartwarming storylines. He's just really, I mean, that, I think that may be the biggest audience he found internationally. So that was a loss. So I want to talk about, I know you guys, every time that we do the show, you're like, Drew, talk about your job. Tell us what you do. I don't have to because you can watch a documentary series on um, Apple TV+. Plus. It's called The Big Con. And, uh, it's very, very good. It's four episodes and it's about a guy in Kentucky who you could hire to get your disability benefits from social security. And he stole more than half a billion dollars from social security with very, um, simple fraud. So if you like the true crime stuff and you want to think about me the whole time, uh, I think you should watch the big con. Big con. But what Wait, I really want to, I'm sorry. What? I think you, you got to explain, are you a con man or do you stop them? I'm a, dis I'm a disability examiner. I don't stop them, although I can report fraud. So if you apply for uh, disability benefits through Social Security, I'm one of the people that decides if you get it, which is why people on the phone are generally very nice to me. What I really want to talk about is a movie that Ralph mentioned last week, and I have to say I was very frustrated through the first half of it. I thought it paid off a lot of stuff, and I cannot stop thinking about it. Of course, I'm talking about Nope the new Jordan Peele movie. That is something really special. I'm really glad that I saw it in the theater. I want to talk about it more than Citizen Kane, frankly. There's so too, much to but, talk about. Yeah. But you can't talk about it until people have seen it. Um, I could say things that you would think, oh, you spoiled the movie, and that's not even spoiling the movie, but the less you know, the better. All I knew was uh, something about UFOs and Jordan Peele, and that doesn't spoil anything either. So I think... Um, I like movies that I end up liking more after I think about them. And this one, I really, I cannot stop thinking about it. It's just very smart and it's got a lot of really neat things to say wrapped in what looks like a big summer blockbuster. And Jordan Peele, man, he is, uh, he is going to be somebody to watch. I mean, three movies that I think are all great 
and um, each one more sophisticated than the last. Unfortunately, I didn't see it in IMAX. I'm told that's the way to see it. Really? Uh, the cinematog- yeah, the cinematographer is Hoyte Van Hoytema, who shoots Chris Nolan's IMAX movies like Interstellar and Dunkirk. He's basically the guy if you want to shoot an IMAX feature film. And apparently the whole, I mean, it's a great movie the way I saw it, but apparently it really is built from the ground up for IMAX. So if you want to see it, apparently that is the way to go. And I think it's doing well, so it's not going to be disappearing anytime soon. And it's one of those that you want to see again. Oh, yeah. All the things just to pick up every little, you know. Did you see it in IMAX, Ralph? No, I didn't. I don't go to IMAX anymore. After The Man of Steel blasted my eardrums to the point where I couldn't hear anything. They are pretty loud. I just, I just get frustrated by how loud they are. Wow. Um, and I, I will say there was you know, there was one yeah. scene where the um, the soundtrack had these hums in it, and they got so low and so loud, the speakers in the theater started to die, and I got really concerned that it was a problem. So that's clearly built for whatever soupy, super DCS Dolby mix they have in the IMAX theaters. But it's and as film people, it's a movie that's all about film people. Mostly, mm-hmm. there's a lot of great scenes with, uh, especially the guy playing the cinematographer, and there's yep. some really good stuff going on in there. So I'm glad yeah, and, you liked it. And like this, like this movie we're going to talk about today, there's just there's so many different things that all work at the same time, like sound design, editing, casting, all sorts of stuff, and it's really worth your time, even if you don't think you're interested in Jordan Peele's movies or you haven't even seen Get Out or Us, which you should see. There's something really special. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Chris. Oh. <coughs> Uh, yeah, I actually uh, didn't see too much uh, lately, uh, but I did get around to finishing season three of The Boys. Nice. And, um, you know, it's it's funny um, as a like a really hardcore comic book guy and a guy who liked a lot of uh, offbeat and independent comic books and stuff. Um, it finally hit me uh, what uh, what the, I don't know if they ever even you know, I've never read The Boys, the comic book, but there is a comic book from the 80s called Martial Law. And um, it's really uh, it, it's, it's one of the reasons why The Boys has never quite knocked me out. Um, I like it. I think it's very good. But it's like I've read a lot of comics that kind of go over that. Hey, what if people really did have godlike powers in the world? Um, and even the characters in there are created by science. You know, they're not uh, they're not mutants. They're not born with it. That kind of thing. And uh, the, basically the character of, of this guy, Martial Law, is like this. Uh, he's a, he's a superhero, an ex-soldier who is modified. And uh, he's going after this guy who is remarkably similar to Homelander, um, who's really not a very good person, you know, um, just along, you know, just across the board. Anyway, long story short, I did enjoy the end of the boys, or at least the end of the third season. I don't know if uh, Sean and Debbie have finished it yet, so I don't want to get into too many uh, individual elements of it, but uh, it was definitely solid, and uh, I liked it. But I'm also extremely, and I'll talk about this next time, but I'm really looking forward to uh, Paper Girls. I don't know if anyone has seen the preview for that. I also, just watched the first episode. Also based on a comic book that's uh, completed. I, I read the whole thing and um, really looking forward to it. On on the surface, it looks like kind of almost like a uh, Stranger Things kind of rip off. And there's obviously some uh, some similarities. Uh, but I'm really hoping that if it follows more along the lines of the comic book, it's going to go in some really different directions. And uh, it's more, a little bit more sci-fi than horror. But uh, What's it playing on? It's Amazon. It's an Amazon okay. original. Mm-hmm. I want to say something about um, 
the boys. I finished the season as well. I thought it was really excellent, mm-hmm. but I, that show, there's a, there's an episode, uh, but it's basically a, about, it's set at a superhero orgy. So you might think, well, there's lots to see there. And, and it, it, there is, but there's a scene in that episode that is, um, essentially a fight scene that is the most exhilarating thing I've seen on television for a while. It's oh, just, yeah. it's so well done and watching, um, Anthony Starr's uh, face as Homelander uh, at certain parts of that fight. It's just really so satisfying. I keep going back and watching it. So if uh, if you haven't watched it, Sean and Debbie, you should definitely give it a shot. Keep watching it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the scene you're talking about is is really, uh, it's phenomenal. Gone. I'm sure I didn't hear that. What? Gone. <laughs> oh. So uh, rather than talk about something I watched, uh, something just came across the internet that I wanted to share. As everybody knows, I'm a big superhero movie guy. I'm a comic book movie guy. And I don't like the direction that a lot of these movies are going. They're very woke. They uh, race swap and gender swap characters, uh, long comic book characters. Well, they did that with a new film by DC called Batgirl. And it's a $70 million film that um, they race swapped the lead character, Barbara Gordon, and Michael Keaton is in it as uh, his version of Batman. It was just announced that Par- uh, that uh, is it Paramount Warner Brothers. D- Warner Brothers is canceling the movie. They're not going to release it. They're not going to show it on HBO Max. They're not going to release it to the movie theater because it had um, it had a preview and I guess it was not good. Now I've seen some pictures from it. Uh, it didn't look good. Just the photos I saw. Uh, the thing I heard was who was good was Michael Keaton. And Brendan Fraser, who plays the lead villain Firefly, uh, but the 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 movie's been canceled. So maybe DC is uh, starting to recognize, you know, with their, with their properties, they should be doing a lot better than they are. Their TV stuff is good. Their movies are are not good. I don't really understand it with their properties, um, but uh, I just thought that was really interesting that they spent that much money on a film and they're not going to release it. Now maybe yeah, canceled is the wrong term. Because canceled means they didn't make it. That's true. This no, you're right. Completely different. And they're yeah. saying it's a seventy million dollar film. Other people are saying early figures is that they spent a hundred million dollars making the film. Oh, really? From the directors of the Bad Boys Forever. Right. And can you imagine just answering to the stockholders that you spent a hundred million dollars on a film and you're not going to release it? Yeah. You're not going yeah, to let you it What's the feel, reason? What's the reason? You, but you know what they'll say. So they'll say bad. we're going to save $150 million by not marketing it. Yeah. And That's they also true. said they're afraid it will damage the brand. Right. It's so bad, it's going to damage their brand. Because it was supposed to lead to an HBO Max series. That was their intent with the film. Uh, and obviously, that's not going to happen either. Hey, maybe they recognize... Because there's somebody new over there uh, at Warner Brothers that's making maybe this decision. Asshole. Yeah, so My maybe, boss. maybe, boss. maybe, they, maybe it'll get him to head in the right direction. I don't know. It's not just them; it's Marvel too. So maybe, maybe they're waking up to this a little bit. Because frankly, if you look at the box office from the latest movies, they're not nearly what they were. Uh, Avengers: Endgame was obviously the pinnacle. Everything else is even Thor: Love and Thunder, which did all right, is not doing anywhere. Could it be that there's just too many of them? Yeah. I mean, no, no, I'm not going to be done with this. I think that's a probably a factor. Too. Maybe, but you know what? For 20 years, they had those Avengers movies, and they, they uh, 90 percent of them were really good, and people went to see them. If you make bad movies that the, the comic book fans don't want to see, you're you're losing your audience. So I think that's part of it, and maybe this will wake them up. I don't know. 
So anyway, that's all I want to talk about. I just thought that was unbelievable that they would that they would not release it on on either format. I definitely well now, of course, I think maybe that's why now now it's going to generate. People are going to want to see it now to see what it was all about. And it probably, it will probably end up on HBO Max, maybe, unless they destroy the negative, which they wanted to do to the movie we're going to watch tonight. (laughs) There isn't even a negative. So what are you going to do? That's true, right? It's it's too bad because I I actually, I, I, I'm also like Ralph. I've, you know, had my fill of superhero movies. I'm more willing to give something a chance, but I was actually looking forward to that movie with some curiosity because I love Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Apparently he has a big role in it. Yeah. So I was curious to see what ends up with him, but I'm sure it'll come out or leak or it'll fake leak or they'll put out the, you know, LRB follow cut or some nonsense. Right. And, right. <laughs> they'll put it out after they have a hit. Right. Chris, what do you want to say? I, I was just going to say this though. And, and, and I agree with you. I understand why they, they would, you know, maybe shelve something like that. And of course, like you said, it's, it's one of those things in some ways it might be a, a way to generate a bunch of marketing with very little money, you know, because all of a sudden when you're right. told you can't see something, people desire it. That's right. um, Boy, Chris. But, but do you, but, but I'm going to ask this, and this is something you brought up a number of times, John. And it's like, but do you think that the reason the movie is bad is because they uh, made Batgirl? I mean, I don't know anything about the film, but they, it's, it's not, no, you know, no, you I don't think, think that's, I mean, you, you know, you're, you, you, you've mentioned before that you worry, you know, that you talk about, you know, race swapping and gender swapping and things like that. And I mean, comic books have, especially DC comic books, they restart themselves like every five years. I mean, okay. But if you know the character years. of Batgirl, mm-hmm. she's never changed. Well, I mean, yeah, it's never. always been Barbara Gordon. I, yeah. I get it. But I guess my question is this is, do you think the reason why it was bad was because they chose, no. I, I'm assuming an African American girl? Uh, no, I, th- I think she's, I think she's Hispanic. I'm not sure. Okay. But either uh, way. No, I, mean, I don't I think, think that's I why. No, I know nothing about it. It's sort of like the female Ghostbusters. You know, was that film bad because they were female? No, it was bad because it was a, um, it's not a good film. Yeah. It's a terrible movie. No, I don't think a lot of hits from people who said they shouldn't be women playing those parts. That movie. No, that's before the film came out. Then the film came out. Right, even before the film came out. Even before the film came out, it was getting attacked. No, that was that was. They're using women in their beloved Ghostbusters. That's not what killed the movie. That's not what killed the movie. Ultimately, what killed the movie? It was terrible. Right. Yeah. So they picked the wrong director. But my point is all the stuff. Oh, no, I'm not making your point for you. The yeah, it died that, because it was bad, not right. because it was um, yeah. That wasn't my point. My point was all yeah. the bullshit that said before the movie even comes out because of race, gender, and switching or whatever everybody's worried about, their beloved product. That's my point. Yes, it sucked because they picked the wrong guy to direct it, and those girls were improv. Well, and the script was bad. Everything was bad in that one. Right. So but I'm talking about the stuff the guys. And the fact that you can't, you know, swap somebody out and it gets you upset. No, Star it Wars doesn't. Is going through the same, Star Wars is going through the same thing. Yeah, and guess what's happening to Star Wars, Ralph? Maybe there's too much Star Wars stuff out yeah, there. Yeah, maybe that's what maybe. it is. Maybe it's not that it's bad. Maybe it's uh, just there's too much of it. Don't you like think the, too much like, of a good like, thing Like, like Obi-Wan bad? Kenobi, I mean, the, the, the best character in Star Wars, they completely ruin. And you think it's because there's too much Star Wars? Uh-uh. The script was bad. He was bad because they didn't... They didn't uh, it wasn't the same character from the other movies, so no, I don't buy that. And as far as Batgirl goes, I don't think goes, you can keep repeating the same thing. Well, what if what if they recast Obi Wan Kenobi in the series with Idris Elba? Would that feel different to you? Well, I think that uh, he's a brilliant actor. I think it'd be great. I actually love. I, mean, I, you, I say that there. as a as a big fan of colorblind casting. I think that's such an interesting trend in the business. I think um, 
you know, like if you if you are interested in so many different, like if you're interested in Hamilton, if you're interested in U.S. history, all that kind of stuff, that's a show to see because it's a really, really, really good show. And it does something interesting with the race of the performers. But I think uh, The Great on uh, Hulu is probably my favorite example right now of colorblind casting because they're all real or real-ish people, but we don't have an image of them. We don't have Batgirl in our head for 50 years or 70 years or whatever it is. And you discover like that in Bridgerton, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Who doesn't have a vision in their head of who Batgirl is? Well, no, no, I'm saying, wait, wait, I'm wait, saying wait, people wait. have a vision of oh, Batgirl. Oh, yeah, right. They don't yeah. have a vision of Catherine oh, the Great. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Right. So, but I... I but again, uh, it's it, Batgirl. <laughs> right. Okay, Ralph. Batgirl should be darker in her color. There you go, Debbie. Well, I yeah. love it. All right, Debbie and Sean, that, what have you guys watched? Well, well, first off, um, I got a, a confession to make. Uh-oh. I finished um, The Boys Ahead of Debbie. <gasps> the coffee's for clothes only. Yeah, what? she... Well... Did you know it? Okay, I... I kind of suspected it because oh. I am like cheating on her. He is. He's jumping ahead, but it doesn't bother me that much because I was. I'm dragging my feet on the boys. You're not into it. Wait till you get to the orgy. The hero gasm. Hero gasm. That you thing know, was so tame and ridiculous. Debauchery. Yeah. It, it, it just makes me feel sick inside. Not really. Sometimes. <laughs> Well, what okay. we tried to watch was okay. a recommendation from Ralph, I and I believe I feel guilty. I shouldn't be as you know. I shouldn't be watching these things. Well, then don't watch them. Yeah, I know. That's what it's like. That's why I skipped ahead. There was a song that we used to sing in church in the Baptist uh, church. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. No. Oh, be careful, okay. little eyes, what you see. As the Father up above is looking down with love, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There and that's always is sparking a real religious revival. I did not expect yeah. that. I know. I feel so like here, right, what'd you try to watch? Yeah, that's that? how we get subscribers right there. We yeah, tried to watch to Ambulance. Oh, oh, sorry. And then yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and Debbie made me turn it off, but just because of that first scene where the little girl's impaled. Oh. With the um, fence uh, post thing. Oh, spoiler yeah. alert for those who haven't seen it. Yeah, it's yeah in you the ruined the first minute. five minutes of a seven-hour Michael Bay movie. <laughs> it's a two, is that two hours long? I forget how long. Two and a half. So I guess you're saying you didn't like it, or you? Like it? Uh, he, she made me stop it. No. I, oh. You could have watched that. Sean, you have your own agency. If you want to keep watching it, keep watching it. No, you, no, no you literally have agents. I watch something else. No. Oh. What? Well, I watched, um, while Debbie was sleeping, I watched the most hated man on the internet. Oh. That was a, um, good talk about it. Um, who is that? It's the guy who ran, um, is anyone up, which was a revenge porn site, you know, where people put break up with a girl. He's pretty awful. Nude photos. Did you watch the show, Drew? No, Kelly did. And she said it was really excellent and really, really upsetting. Because, I mean, I, I had never heard of this guy. She'd never heard of this guy. I mean, everybody's right. heard of things like 4chan, but not this dude. But the problem was, what what he was doing was despicable. But because he wasn't getting the influx of nude photos, he had another guy basically 
through Facebook conning people into getting their passwords and search women, you know, approaching women and getting their nude photos. And then they would just say, you're somebody sent it to us. But they were really hacking into people's accounts, private accounts and getting their nude photos and all. But this guy, it was just totally an immoral bastard. You know, he was destroy. He was taking pleasure in destroying people's lives. And it's like, and not only were they posting these photos, he was like trying to get his audience as malicious as possible. It's like, what can you say about this despicable slut? You know, and then the guys would just like lay in on everything about the. Woman. Is this person in jail now, or what? Or should I watch? He that? was in jail for a, for a brief time, but he's out. He was going to participate in the documentary, but not did not. But they Where is this airing? Photo. Where is it on? It's on uh, Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's the most hated man on the internet. Okay. And the, really, the funny thing is, who put him out of business was this woman. They she put this, he posted pictures of his daughter, her daughter on there, and she single-handedly kind of went after this guy until she brought the forces together. That Always the women. Same thing in that other show we watched about the guy who was scamming women. It's the women that go. Once they get sworn, they go after. Yeah, the Tindler swindler. Always the women, Debbie. Always the women. Debbie, did you watch anything, or did you you watch everything this week? I was, like, so wrapped up in our little world. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I'm going to mention what I mentioned on uh, Cue It Up, uh, the documentary on Paramount Plus called The Day the Music Died, which is a documentary about the song American Pie, written by Don McLean. I, I did watch that, Ralph, after you recommended it. Yeah. Um, it's one It's one of these films like we've been watching lately where they repeat that song about 18 yeah. times uh, in the in the film. <laughs> um, and it's fun. I mean, it's fun. You know, you kind of get into the lore of how he wrote it. We kind of all know the lyrics and we know what he was saying, obviously the buddy Holly and the big bopper and Richie Valens. Um, but this kind of dives in. I think it was like I mentioned on the podcast, I think it was commissioned by him because he comes off as one of the greatest singer songwriters ever created. Uh, but it's fun to see the steps. The first album was terrific. The album with American pie. The other stuff was really good. Yeah. That's got Vincent on there and a couple of his other early ones that are really well done. That was an ex. That's all you need though. I think, but I would, like I said, if you like the song, you're going to love this documentary because you're seeing, you're hearing multiple versions of the song done by young people. Uh, Garth Brooks has a whole side story about how he much, he loves the song. He even brought him on in central park and they sang it together. Big honor for Brooks. Um, so it's a fun one. It's 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 about an hour and forty minutes. It's one. I tell you what amazed me the most. They they show. So when when he sat down, I, I don't know. Uh, he had an epiphany about writing the song, and he's got cassettes of when he originally wrote it. He was sitting there writing down the lyrics, and what he wrote originally is pretty much exactly what the song yeah, ended up. It there, didn't yeah. go through like all these big changes. The biggest change was uh, they brought in someone to play the keyboards which completely changed the song when they were recording it for real. But when he was writing it, he said it just came out and what he wrote ended up the song. I mean, very little of it changed the lyrics and everything, the the, uh, the chorus. I found that really interesting. And you hear him, you know, with the cassettes, you're hearing the original version with him just playing on guitar. Yeah, they do reenactment, reenactments. Reenact- all, yeah. it, it looks pretty good. They shot yeah. it pretty well as if you're watching Did they it. talk to Bob Dylan? No. no. Although he mentioned Bob Dylan. pleased. Was not pleased with that reference to him being the Joker. 
Yeah, no. but yeah. but he yeah, said he he said he said it wasn't the Joker, and they were he wasn't talking about Elvis Presley. And there's something else he mentioned too. He goes, if I was talking about them, I would have mentioned them by name. It's, it's, it's the same that the scene that John's talking about, where they create, where the the producer actually created the song that we all know and love. It's the same thing that happened in Get Back when Billy right. Preston came in and started pounding on the keyboard. It changed the whole direction right. of that song. And the energy changed, and it's it is what we're hearing now. And he was just riffing. The p- a pianist was riffing. He didn't have. He, he was listening to the song in his headsets. He didn't even have the music. And then he just started jamming, and it changed the whole dynamic. Well, and of the, the song. producer brought him in. Goes, I know the soul guy who plays the right. piano. We'll bring him in. See if we can. And it's just it's fun. Yeah, anyway, it was good. I really Paramount enjoyed Plus. it. It's a shorty. It's not. It's not a multi-series documentary. No. And it's, it's and no one's getting conned. If you don't no like the song, conned. you don't want to watch it. Yeah, if you don't like <laughs> the song, you will not. Like this show at all. Okay. All right. How well, many different versions can you hear of American Pie? Now, our new format is we all, when we get picked, we pick, bring a film that we either have not seen all the way through or have never seen. So I got the first pick, and I brought Citizen Kane to the table, um, which actually, as I watched this this time, I realized the only scene I had ever seen was I saw the scene uh, where the mother uh, signs him away, and that, that, that the shot through the window where he's yeah. doing the snowboard, and then they pan the camera and they open up the table and yeah. all that. We saw that. I remember seeing that in film school in college. But that's the only scene I ever watched of Citizen Kane. You didn't watch the whole movie. You just no, watched that scene. No, we just analyzed that scene because oh. it was, you know. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So Citizen Kane. Let's watch the trailer and then we'll get into it. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, well, the chorus girls are certainly an attraction. But frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. It's pretty nice ballyhoo. But here's some of our real Mercury people. This is the first time you've seen most of them on the screen. Hey, uh, give Joe a little light. Thanks. Now smile for the folks, Joe. Smile. Joseph Cotton, ladies and gentlemen. That's it. Joseph Cotton. I think you're going to see a lot of him. Here's Ruth Warwick, whom I know you love. Ruth. Look at the camera, Ruth. We caught Ruth with her hair up. And here's somebody you've all heard on the radio, so I don't have to tell you he's wonderful. Ray Collins. Dorothy Comengore is a name I'm going to repeat. Dorothy Comengore. I won't have to repeat it much longer. You'll be repeating it. And here's George Kouluris, who's a grand actor. I'll say that name again. George Kouluris. Watch it. Here comes Everett Sloan. Look out, Everett. Oops. Everett Sloan, ladies and gentlemen. He isn't necessarily a comedian. And here's one of the best in the world. Agnes Moorhead. I've said a lot of nice things, but Erskine Sanford deserves some more. Erskine. Erskine Sanford. So does Paul. Paul. Paul Stewart, everybody. Citizen Kane is a modern American story about a man called Kane. Charles Foster Kane. I don't know how to tell you about him. There's so many things to say. I'll turn you over instead to the characters in the picture. As you'll see, they feel very strongly on the subject. Charles Foster Kane is... Sure, he started the war. 
But do you think if it hadn't been for Mr. Kane, the United States would have the Panama Canal? Charles Foster Kane is nothing more or less than a communist! Kane, governor. Listen, when the voters of this state and Mrs. Kane learn what I found out about Mr. Kane and a certain little blondie named Susan Alexander, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. I'm going to skin Mr. Charles Foster Kane alive. I'm going to marry him next week at the White House. Emily, I hear you've been stepping out with Charlie Kane. Of course I love him. I gave him $60 million. Well, of course I love him. He's the richest man in America. But all the girls say about him at first. But you know, I can't help but admire him. He's crazy. He's wonderful. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you'll think about Mr. Kane. I can't imagine. You see, I play the part myself. Well, Kane is a hero. And a scoundrel, a no-account, and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. Okay, there you go. That was uh, a great trailer. Yeah, even the, trail, even the trailer, even the trailer is brilliant. I can't right. go over that. So Did let's we... talk about this film, this masterpiece. Um, I really enjoyed the film, and I what? went in. I went in. I went in cynical. Now I'm I'm looking at it from a so I look at it as a master class in cinematography, and a master class in inventiveness. The, the stuff enough. that they pulled off. And the fact that Orson Welles took his Mercury Theater people um, and said and, and, and negotiated so he had full control is, is a, you know, we all know the story. We've seen Mank. We've seen some of the, I think it's uh, RKO 281, which is sort of a behind the scenes of, of this film. I've seen all that, and it really enhances what I'm, when I'm watching Citizen Kane to realize all the stuff. I was just amazed by uh the, the, the trickery they pulled off. Now, the matte paintings, that's all fine, but it's really the other stuff they did. And his cinematographer, Greg, Greg Toland, who he Toland. gave, he basically, Toland, yeah. he basically gave him not really a director's co-credit, but he put him on the same page with him at the end, which was him saying this guy, you know, because Orson Welles was new to the business, new to the film business. He's a theater guy. And actually, this film is very theatrical in the shooting and the lighting and the the fact that the way they use the ceilings to shoot the light through and keep the microphones up in the ceiling. No one before this, now this came out in 1941, no audiences had seen the ceilings of, right. of rooms. And these guys were shooting, they dug a hole to get down and look up. So for me, it was definitely a masterpiece uh, in the cinematography and the editing. I mean, he was flying back and forth. I mean, there, about meaning his scenes were going back and forth in time, um, which was new. Uh, so from an editing and cinematography standpoint, I can see why it's a master piece. Now, I know there was some, you know, it's, it's, I think it's been voted the top American film year after year after year, right? Yeah. And now John knows John's our Citizen Kane expert, so he he's, can't wait to start talking. No, about no, this. no. I want to hear more from you. I'm excited about this because you picked this to, so I couldn't pick it in the future. Bastard. I did. It was a block. I know. Like you guys said, I uh, came block. It was block a you. block. You came block me. <laughs> yeah. Came block me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and of course I read up on it and I, and I got some backstory and I had seen Mank and loved all that stuff about the writing of this film. 
Um, but again, it's a story, you know, the story itself. I think Pauline Kale said that the rosebud is a gimmick, was a gimmick, a fun gimmick, she said, but a gimmick. I know she wrote an essay, a two, two chapter essay or two part essay yeah. in 1971 about how this is a shallow masterpiece, not a true masterpiece. Well, she trashing Wells for a little bit. She was going credit. after him for the, not writing. a little bit. Well, okay. Yeah. But you know, yeah, I tended, agree with her. She, okay, good. She tended to do that to certain films that she, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, it, it, when you break down the, I mean, it's, it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of funny about newspapers. It's all about the newspaper business. Um, but again, I'm struck by the, the cinematography and it, it blew me away knowing what they pulled off with what they had and, and figuring out that they were lighting through the ceilings and all the tricks that they pulled, the dissolves in and out of scenes, the way they use black and white, uh, I'm not sorry, negative space. And some of that stuff they processed later. Some of it they shot live, you know, like we're doing this deep focus thing. I was just fascinated by what that cinematographer was pulling off. And those cameras, if you look at the behind the scenes, those cameras are huge. Yeah. And to pull off a scene like they do when the mother's signing him away and they're pulling that camera through the window, past the living room, they have a table that has a split. Split, in it. yeah. So as the camera goes through it, it splits, and you see a little bit of that top hat that's on that right. table rocking a little Take bit. A little bit. Put yeah. it together. Pulling stuff like that off is just a master class. And uh, also, that's why I – what's that? When they go into Susan Alexander's right. side. The neon sign splits. The roof. Right, yeah. they split that one as well. Down through you the window. You can actually see the cut in the neon sign. Yeah. You can see the little I mean, cut. I found that stuff fascinating. And um, But the story, you know, it's a, the rise and fall of a powerful guy who starts off as a populist. I thought it was very funny, that scene where he loses the election, where they hold up the one that says, uh, Kane wins. Yeah. And the next one they pick up is voter fraud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. So that was 1941. But I love the, you know, the Randolph, the Randolph Hearst, you know, comparisons and all that. Um, but for me, it's about the cinematography and the direction and the editing. It is a masterpiece for that. Story wise, you guys can get into it, but, you know, I don't really, it didn't really, you know, and it's Rosebud. It's script by Mankiewicz and Kane, yeah. not Kane and Wells, but, you know, Mankiewicz was the one who knew um, Hearst. Hearst. Yeah. Right. Well, and, Mar- and Marion Davies and Pauline yeah. Kale. That's what she got into in her two essays was how much this was you know, that whole scene where the where Jedediah is doing the review and falls asleep, or because he's drunk, and Kane finishes the review. That happened to Mankiewicz. That came right. right out of his life. Also, he was friends with those people. So he, you know, we saw in the movie Mank they're doing the whole the scenes in. It's not Xanadu. They called it. I don't forget what they. Wasn't Xanadu doing that? San Simeon. San Simeon. Right. So yeah, that's this all came out of his experience with his relationship with those guys. But anyway, I, I don't yeah, want you guys. Style, you know, this this movie is. <clears throat> I just want to hear what you guys have to say. I enjoyed it. Um, do I care to see it again? Maybe I, I did listen to the Roger Ebert. Thing, oh, you did. I guess, he, I guess he went on the road with that. Yeah, he did that live because he's just you know he's such a fan of it, and I found it you know it was fun listening to him. Yeah. But again, for me, it was all the technical aspects that that I was very impressed with. Uh, and I guess I guess Orson Welles was kind of a blowhard, and uh, you know he had a little bit of cane in him, uh, <laughs> which which comes across a little bit with some of the actors. I did like that he called out the people at the end, yeah, the Mercury Theater group, people who we had, we had never seen before. Only a heard. good cast is worth repeating. And um, and then after this, I went and watched the first scene in uh, Touch of Evil. Oh yeah, 
uh, just to get a sense. And that's, that's pretty cool too. But uh, anyway, I'll hear what you guys have to say. Well, uh, let me jump in before John, I think. <laughs> I do um, that Pauline Kale piece, which is very famous, where she really lays into well. The hit piece. The hit piece. Yeah. It makes a lot of excellent points. Um, Wells, this is a great film. And watching it this time, I rather than the concentrating on the script or the story, the script is fantastic, in my opinion. Performances are great. But I knew I had a feeling I knew where Ralph was going. And I've always appreciated the photography. But there were a lot of touches I didn't really notice until um, I watched this time. Like at one point in the movie, he signs his declaration on the first paper they put out about what you, the values and how this paper will never lie to you. And he writes it out by hand. He puts it on a table and he like reads it and discusses it. Well, during that scene, Joseph Cotton is in the light, but right. the entire time Wells is talking, his face is in complete shadow. I mean, that goes to show you, A, a good director, because I hate to say it, but a lot of actors really enjoy having themselves in the light. But the fact that he did that is 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 excellent. Um, it's just the use of the lighting to tell to um, accent to tell, and tell the story is absolutely amazing. But I don't want to get away from the actual power of the story and the performances. It's the first time we see um, Joseph Cotton, Agnes Moorhead, yeah, and Agnes Moorhead, and it's 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 just an amazing cast. Um, I know Debbie didn't like one of. Didn't like the woman who played Susan Alexander. Dorothy Commodore? You, Commodore, you didn't like her? No. Oh man, she. Why I, did you like? Yeah, her? Why? Why is that? What? What was the problem? I, I think it was her voice. That's. I think that's. Isn't that a sh- thing? Isn't she? It's a shtick. It's sort of like what's her name from Born yeah. Yesterday? Oh yeah. yeah, with the Brooklyn accent. Holiday. That's why she was a terrible opera singer. Yeah, it wasn't an imitation. Born Yesterday imitated this. Yeah, <laughs> this came first. But, you know, this is an amazing film, and, you yeah, know, it's... Yeah, this came first, but she did a... Her her, her voice... It was I, an imitation I, of someone who came later, I understand. Yeah, it's just weird. She it's must like have Hedley Lamar in, uh, in uh, Blazing Saddles. We're going to sue her. It's Hedley. We can sue her. Hedley. You'll be able to sue her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact, the lighting, you, t- you talk about, you know, leaning into... The, that whole... The whole movie is, first of all, the reporter's always in black and silhouette right. as yeah. a witness. This, you know, this is what Roger as the Ebert narrator. Yeah. They're all witnesses. Everybody right. that witnesses something is either on the left side of the frame or the right, right side of the frame with their back to you. So we're concentrating on what they're saying. The use of movement, like they would have three people in a scene still, and then and Kane would walk from the back, so your eye goes immediately to what's moving because everybody knows you look at what's moving. And, and the way they use that, to direct your eye where it's going. I mean, that's a stage. That's theater, right? I mean, that's what you're doing in theater. I got something to say here about this movie. So the whole premise of this film is that, you know, this guy is a mystery and all the whole film is trying to find out what is going on with this multimillionaire, you know, what floats, what, what made his boat float? What is his life all about? And what is all this junk that he has in this, this Sim Simeon, or yeah. um, Xanadu, you know, Price, the purpose of no that. man knows. And and the scene that really depicts it for me, what nails it, how boring it is to just, you know, your existence is just to acquire things. 
you know, what the heck is that? That is no value at all to just acquire things. You know, what we're looking for, people are looking for always meaning and, 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 you know, stuff, not stuff, but. But if you notice this, everything, anytime something in his life affects him, he's always in the background. Well, people are saying what's going to happen to him. So his mother's signing him away. He's out in the window. He doesn't know what's going on. When he goes bankrupt, he's got his Mr. Bernstein and his uh, caretaker signing him away while he's against the back window looking out the window where the window's looking 10 feet tall, making him look smaller. Everything that happens in his life, other people are making happen. Now, he affects a lot of that. His actions obviously cause all that. But, I mean, and the, the rosebud, the sled... I mean, that's the thing. He got that taken away, that, that whole scene where it's filling up, piling up with snow at the beginning, and he gets that taken away is why he's trying to collect things in his life. He's just trying to find things to love again, including people, and he just can't pull that off. So He's never, he's, he can't love, he just got to have things, you know? And he and wants I, to be loved. Yes, but... Like Homelander and the boys. <laughs> well, it's a shallow, it's a very shallow existence, even though he was very wealthy and amassed a fortune. It's a very lonely existence. Very lonely. Yeah. yeah. And the, the scene that really depicted that is that big fireplace. Yeah. Oh, when he's standing in the fire. Yeah. Fireplace. It would but which in the foreground, it doesn't look that big. Then he starts walking back and you realize oh. there's a tree trunk in there. Yes. And it's, you know, it showed warmth. They do that a lot. Showed extreme warmth, you know, because right. the fire was always blazing. However, it was always cold, wasn't it? Well, it also showed how small he was. Yeah. That was the point, right? She's in the foreground. And one thing that always bothered me about the film was when they go to his place and they say it's in Florida and it's a mountain. Yeah. I'm like, there's no hills like that. You know, they I, said he, they said in the beginning, they, they do say he built that he it. Built yeah. it. That's right. Yeah. He Did he build it. the mountain? He built the mountain, didn't he? Yep. Say, Let's move this mountain. <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, as a piece of filmmaking, it, you know, what, you know, because everyone, I think everyone knows to, to a degree that this film was inspired by William Randolph Hearst, who was like Kane, a newspaper publisher, one of the most famous and important men of his time. And it, you know, it, it was clear to everyone. I think it was clear to William Randolph Hearst that it was based on him. And by all reports, that word Rosebud was the nickname Hearst had for his mistress, uh, Marion Davies, clitoris. So that was a very low blow, as it were. I thought you would have said, like, private part or something like that. But it's good that we're so clinical on this show. I think that's important. It's called a clitoris, John. You might not have known that's a separate part of women's genitals. But I've never seen one before, but I've heard rumors. So um, I always but, heard it. You know, There's another thing I called it. But Where did this go? <laughs> no, but what I, what I, I want to say in the is boat. you got to ask yourself, <laughs> is a movie like this fair? And probably for Hearst it was, but... One person, every time I watch this movie, I feel bad for is Marion Davies, who yeah. was actually a very talented yeah. comedian. Actress. And, but, you know, Hearst always wanted her in like costume dramas and all. He had a higher goal for her than she had, which is accurately played in the film. Well, well, well we wanted, when he says, when he Wells says, we're opera make, singers, we're well, opera singers. Wells wanted to make sure he felt really bad about that, that people thought, 
because it was about Hearst, but she was not Marion Davies, not even close. And he felt bad that people thought that character was Marion Davies. And that's the one thing he really felt bad about. He thought Hearst could use the comeuppance, but not her. She didn't deserve it. All right, um, let me, I want to hear from uh, Chris and Drew, and then John, you can get on your soliloquy about. Uh, Orson I'm not going to get on a. <laughs> we got we got a 50th anniversary VHS what, pack what, back what here. To note, I right? mean, yeah. you got a blockbuster My soliloquy. That sounds so negative. I don't know why it does, but it does. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's it's Citizen Kane. It deserves every uh, laurel it can get. It's pretty amazing. Uh, when I was rewatching it, it just. Um, just the opening sequence, um, you know, just when they show uh, Xanadu in the background and then it cuts to the monkeys and it cuts to the K and how it's all in kind of ruin. And you have to look closely, but like, you know, there's that scene where it's, I guess they're, you know, like the uh, Chinese dragon boats or, or whatever are in this little obviously man-made pond. And you see this preponderance of wealth, but it's all crumbling. It is, And then, of course, sometimes it's the... Um, you know, it's the reflection in the water of Xanadu towering above it all. It just, it sets that scene so well. And then, um, you know. Well, well the other thing about that scene, Chris, the window in yeah. every fate never changes position. Yeah, yeah. The window, whether it's a reflection, it's always there in mm-hmm. the same spot where Cain is in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, and what I love about it, too, is it's it's unbelievably quiet. You know, it's somber. It's all these things. And then you just essentially like uh, smash cut, I guess you'd put it, to the to, to the newsreel. And, right. and it's just so overwhelming. And it's so great, that newsreel, the way they just they nail it. Now, obviously, they had already been uh, putting newsreels into movies as ways to set stages and stuff by then. Uh, so it's kind of funny how he's, he's he's almost kind of like playing with that a little bit. And, you know, with the kind of the over-the-topness. And then, of course, just all the like absolute darkness with the light, the way it's streaming in, especially when the um, when the reporter goes to the um, he goes to the library and he's and he's in that one room and they open yeah. up the thing and it's like his unpublished manuscript and you're only allowed to read about the parts about Charles Foster Kane and all this and the old you know I don't know there's there's with Brunhilde there. Yeah, yeah, and it's like it's like you watch this film, and as it goes along, you learn more about it. And I love the way that it is. It's not just told straightforwardly; it is told through bias. You know, um, you have some people who really liked him. You know, some people who hated him. Some people thought he was terrible, and some people were in the middle on the guy. Um, I, I thought that was like, and you know, I'm not, you know, I don't have a perfect knowledge of film history, but it's obviously the if something like that had been done before. Um, it was obviously um, not done to that that quality. Do you know what I mean? This is the one that people remember uh, for that. And even when you look back at you know at other films, great films that kind of use that idea. Um, I'm thinking of Kurosawa's Rashomon, for example, uh, where it tells you know multiple angles of the same story. Now this is a little different because each one uh, takes different um, sections of the guy's life. But it's just beautiful to watch. You know, I, I watched this a couple of years ago. My wife had never seen it. And unfortunately for her, she knew what Rosebud was. I mean, she already knew it was the sled. So, you know, she was like that really kind of detracted, you know, knowing that it's coming. Um, but she loved it because it is just a great film, uh, top to bottom. 
And one of the things I wanted to find out from Ralph's thought is because Ralph, you always talk about older films and stilted acting. And I was watching this film again and I was like, while the language that they use is, 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 uh, you know, vernacular of the time and it's probably a lot more cleaned up. I'm sure people cursed a lot more back then than they do in these movies. Um, I felt like it was really natural, you know, um, especially when, you know, uh, Kane is talking to his, um, his guardian, right? Whether, and when he's talking about, he's like, Oh, I, I'm, you know, I plan, I lost a million dollars last year. I plan to lose a million this year and, and a million next. And at that rate, maybe I'll go broke in what, 60 years. You yeah, know, it's wah, just, wah. And it was just <laughs> such like a, uh, he was, I don't know. He's just a terrific actor. Um, and he didn't seem, even though he comes from the theater, he, he seemed to have none of that staginess and none of them did. They were all very, um, terrific well, in my I mean, opinion. I, I'd argue that the only false one for me is the Bernstein, Mr. Bernstein. Oh, I love him. I know he's a good character. I'm not saying, but he's he's a he's a he's like a funny guy. He's like a you know he's always there and he's always into you know he's always supporting the guy. That's the only one. That's the only false note for me was just he was a little too comical, a little too hey Mister you know I, I just didn't you know and these are Mercury these are radio actors right so their yeah, voices yeah. are their most important asset. But I did find it not stale. I found it pretty contemporary. Yeah, but that and, scene, you know, that scene when they flat when when he's talking to the reporter. Talking about the the girl he saw with the parasol. That's the, one of the that best lines a, in the film. That was a wonderful scene, and he was he was so good in it. And he let you know. Remember, they put him in that big high back chair when he's talking about Kane. Totally to agree. make him look totally diminished. Totally agree. That, that but, scene was but incredible. Then, but then you look at the scene where uh, Kane's dancing around and singing his yeah. own song that he wrote, and Bernstein just comes off as like a fanboy at that point. That's all I'm saying. That's the only. I'm not. Yeah, no, you don't, you don't have to defend it, Ralph. Oh, I like. I, mean, I like this. I'm character. not calling you out. I'm just. Oh. But I, I, you know, I'm just saying that. Uh, but I agree, it was. It felt very contemporary. It didn't feel staged. Yeah. And just one other, and just a couple of quick notes there. Um, you know, you, and there's obviously a lot of history that goes along with this film about you know Hearst trying to get it stopped and you know refusing to print positive reviews of it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but if you're ever really interested in something that did go unbelievably wrong, um, the Magnificent Ambersons is. Oh yeah. Um, the first, say, 30 to 40 minutes of that film are uh, as good as Kane, if not a little better, um, to be quite honest with you. It's it's amazing. I highly recommend it, um, even though the end is uh, well, truncated. Well, they butchered it. And yeah, they, they butchered it. They on this ending, and it was a mess. And they did it all while um, Wells was down in um, South America doing something uh, for the military. US government. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but uh, it's a great film. And it's really amazing. And then, believe it or not, though, there is a kind of, I would not call it a remake in any way, shape, or form. But, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Velvet Goldmine, uh, which Ugh. is a, which is, uh, oh, never heard of it. Oh, it's a, um, it's an, it's a, I love it. I think it's fantastic. Um, it is basically, it's, t- uses the exact same format as Citizen Kane to tell a fictionalized version of the glam days of, uh, David Bowie and Iggy Pop. <laughs> So, but anyway, it uses almost the exact same format. Wow. And it's, um, it's great. It's got, I, I really like it. It's got great music. Um, um, a lot of people find it a little bit hard to watch though, because it's, uh, (laughs) I think Drew is one of them. (laughs) No, I, I, I hated everything that Todd Haynes made, um, until he made Far From Heaven and Carol, which I thought were spectacular. And uh, Velvet Goldmine to me was like, this is everything I don't like about him in a movie. And I saw that in the theater. 
uh, in LA. I remember when it came out because it was an interesting premise and it had a great cast. Uh, was it Ewan McGregor yeah, and Jonathan Reese Myers or something? And I mean, I just, I hated it. I hated it. Well, what about Did Citizen you? Kane? Well, I think Citizen Kane is, is, I'm going to, I'm going to put down a, a brave stance here. I think it's significantly better than Young Frankenstein. And I'm comfortable saying that out loud. I, I'm not, okay. I don't agree. But, uh oh. Um, he's setting us up for something now. Well, I, f- I find that, I mean, I had, I, I saw this movie in college. I saw this movie for a film class, like you said, John. I mean, it's, it, it's, the, the innovations of the movie are just spectacular on so many different levels. So the more naturalistic acting and everything. I think one of the most fascinating that you don't really think about when you're watching it, unless you're really interested in how movies are made is, is, uh, obviously the cinematography is striking, but the makeup is extraordinary. Absolutely. And the way that that is, um, Especially the together stuff. with how the cinematography does, you, you, you forget that Charles Foster Kane is, you know, like a 60 something man being played by a 25 year old. Right. Which is, you know, pretty amazing. It reminded me of, um, uh, Max von Sydow. He's always been that old actor, yeah. but when he was in The Exorcist, he was what, like 33 or something. And was they he put that. that- yeah, he's very young, and they put this really amazing makeup on. And the best kind of makeup is when you don't see it. And to not notice Orson Welles' makeup as anything other than natural, as it bounces around through time and stuff, uh, is is actually it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it's true. I um I don't connect with this movie. I find it more nutritious than delicious. I think it's a very important movie. I think it's a very important uh, film to to study in the history of filmmaking and innovation. I feel like. His arc, I don't know that much about Hearst. Obviously, he's, he reminds me of, of, of Trump, except he's not a moron because of the way that he, he treats women, the way that he built a, 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 a fame on demagoguery and, and media, uh, saying I had forgotten the lost election was a result of fraud, that kind of stuff. And, um, Trump actually, actually has spoken on this movie, which is interesting because he said something that was insightful, which was about how this movie is about accumulation. And how that doesn't really get you anywhere. And then the next thing he said was that, you know, nobody really knows what Rosebud is. It's one of those great mysteries. I swear to God, he said that. It's <laughs> oh really quite God. extraordinary. But, um, I think, you know, the, the movie, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me on an emotional level, even as I appreciate it. But I find Orson Welles really interesting as a person and his life. And I mean, to, to see that he essentially is in the business and then what he did, he peaked at age 25 with this movie. That doesn't mean everything else he did was terrible. Of course not. But I mean, the, the amount of control that he had over this movie, he never had again. And the, uh, the, the things that he was able to do while he was, you know, getting, he was successful and getting older and heavier following that sort of Brando thing. And like, he's, he's still doing, you know, touch of evil and F is for fake and Amber all this uh, third man. And I mean, he's such a stupendous actor when he shows up in, um, the third man, it's just riveting yeah. to watch him and watch him on the Ferris wheel and everything. Uh, and of course my, my second, um, I was really my favorite Orson Welles performance is the Paul Masson, um, Champagne commercials. Turn camera. Mark. 102, take one. With overlap, action please. The outtakes are just spectacular because you're watching one of the greatest actors in the whole world slum and confused directors and actors. Just do anything? When the the director says action and and then there's nothing and then... Ah, the French champagne. Has always been celebrated for its excellence. 
There is a California champagne by Paul Masson. I mean, like, it's just, like, there's a man in there who's made some of the greatest movies ever, and now he's just selling champagne from California. So, I also think, I mean, the movie is interesting because, I, as I said, I don't know that much about Hearst. I know about yellow journalism and that part of history. I don't know that much about him personally. I couldn't have told you, like, what was the name of his, uh, you know, girlfriend's clitoris or whatever. But, um, the way that the movie criticizes Hearst and the way it anticipates um, so many things that shape our world now, it anticipates families like the Murdoch family, which is essentially what's portrayed in succession and how, um, you know, you have such incredible wealth and how it distorts your family and, and um, distorts your, your relationship with your children. I thought honestly, there'd be more about his son in the movie. I, you know, there will be blood kind of went down that path a little bit as well. But um, well, remember in the uh, in the newsreel they talk about the wife and the son. Wife and kid get killed. killed. So we kind of right, yeah, right. Of, but I mean, you well, know, I think that, that would have been a huge psychological thing losing your only son. Well, that I would think have been more of a factor in the story. I think that I think that it could be a factor in the story, except that the whole point of the movie is we don't really know him at He's all. He's a mystery, right? Yeah. And yeah. so you know, he. Um, I mean, he was dead set on winning an election and then he got found out by a guy he already knows is dirty. Right. And he's like, you know, basically, I'm just going to stay here and I'm going to get you. And what a surprise. He didn't lose. He didn't win the election because that's what happens in the real world. So, um, I was curious to see what we were going to say about this because, um, you know, it's, it's just been so much written about it and so much said about it and it deserves all that attention and everything. But I mean, at the end of it, it's like Kane had all the things and he had nothing and. That's that's a very relatable thing for people in, in our world. Yeah. Again, I, I attacked it from a completely technical and creative. That scene in the middle where he ate, where he, they, they, the, the wife, where they end the up. The montage. The montage. It's not really a montage, but it's, well, they start together and right. they end up with the, the shot where they're separate on the table. And how, how innovative oh, yeah. that was at the time. Like, oh my God, they, what are they well, doing? That was like, uh, that was like a 10 page scene. That yeah. he said, let's do this instead. And they did it backwards. And so they it told you everything you wanted yeah. to. Yeah, told you everything you need to know about why their marriage broke up. That's what I mean. There's great. so many interesting nuggets right. in this film that you know. As a film student, I know that's why my teacher showed us that scene in the um, snow through the window and all that. Because for that time, for to do that in 1941 with the size of those cameras was just crazy. Anyway, all right, John. You got thirty seconds. Give no, you got. Best <laughs> you guys have already said a lot. Look, I love this movie. I watch this movie. I don't know, probably ten, twenty times a year. I watch this. Wow. I love this movie for a bunch of different reasons. The thing for me that I always sit and and just amazed at is I think about myself at twenty five, right? And I think about where my mind was at, and then I think about this guy who at 25 had been on Broadway. He was doing, um, you know, in Harlem, he had a, a theater company. He was doing the, uh, the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. He was the shadow. He comes to Hollywood, never making a movie. He gets an unprecedented deal where he's got complete control uh, given to him by RKO, George Schaefer, the producer. And he creates, at 25 years, with no knowledge of film, creates one of the greatest, in most people's minds, the greatest American film ever made. And part of the reason why, like Greg Tolan went to him and said, I want to work on this picture. And Wells is like, great, but why? He goes, because you don't know anything. And and Tolan was working for directors like John Ford, who, you know, when you see a John Ford film, it's not a Greg Tolan look. It's a John Ford look 
where Tolan wanted to, you know, put his stuff in it. And a lot of the cinematography and all the angles and stuff was him. Well, Wells, at one point, Wells is changing all the lighting because in the theater, that's what directors do. Well, in film, that's what the cinematographer does. But Tolan's not saying anything. Finally, after about two weeks, someone told Wells, that's not your job. It's Tolan's job. And and he went to Tolan and apologized and Tolan said, hey, listen, don't worry about it. He loved working from the, and the, the technical aspect of this film that I love, all the special effects, all the angles. What I love about it is it wasn't just done to do it. It was done to further the story. So when, when he's young and idealistic, everything's in the light. When he starts to go the other side, everything's in the dark. That scene you're talking about where they're signing away the kid's life. They're in the foreground with the bright contract. The father's a little bit back, diminished, because they're pulling the kid away from him till they throw out the money. Now he changes his mind. And in the dead center of the screen is the window with the little kid. And this is everyone's talking about that kid in the background. That's why they did that and why he wanted the, the fixed focus. He wasn't the first to do that. Stagecoach did it. And one of the things Wells did for a month was watch Stagecoach every single day to see how to make films. And Wells' reasoning was, the human eye, everything's in focus. So why can't it be that way in film? And that's why he wanted that. So you'd see all the details of everything. So so it wasn't, and, and by the way, special effects, like 50% of the film is special effects with matte paintings yeah, and have the optical print. Star Wars. Yeah, that's, it really Andrew does. Ebert was just raving about Yeah, when you go back and look at the making of this and they oh. show you before and after, it's incredible, the right. stuff. So, so it, it's not just to do it. I mean, everything had a reason. Why do you want to film from so low to show him bigger than life? Why do you go up high to diminish him? And again, the other thing for me as an actor is Orson Welles in this at 25 years old, the, the, the progression of his age isn't like caricature, right? I mean, he's 40, 50, he dies at 70 years old, but to see the performance, not just in the body, when he smashed up that room, his body language was of an older person, but not a characterized older person. And his voice, even what he did with his voice, you cannot believe that that's a 25-year-old guy doing this. So so for me, that, that just – and the whole cast, you can tell that they've worked in radio for years because their, their uh, rapport with each other, their acting uh, senses – were, were incredible, you know, when they get up together. And it, it was funny. It was – and Bernard Herman did the score. And the script is fantastic. And the, the the Kale thing was a hit piece on Wells. Look, Mank deserves a lot of credit for this movie. But <laughs> Wells – I mean, the, the script that he wrote was a six-hour movie. Wells condensed it all down and added a bunch of different things that was definitely Wells' vision. And and um and and when they hired me, part of the deal was he doesn't get credit. And then he then he says, "Well, I want credit now because he saw how great this movie was going to be." In fairness to Wells, now Wells was an egotist, and frankly, how could you not be after all the success he had at that age? So I don't really fault him for that. But but like what Drew said, you know, the pinnacle of his film was this movie. That's not to diminish any of his other movies but only because he had total control over it. So you, you think to yourself, what could have happened if he could have made, like Ambersons, if they left it alone and let him do what he wanted to do, that was, I mean, I've, I've read the script and it sounds like an amazing movie and Agnes Moorhead probably would have won an Oscar if they did the original movie. But but you, you look at other movies, you know, that, that scene at the end with the warehouse, Raiders of the Lost Ark, boom, the warehouse at the end. I mean, how many things got pulled from this 
And they weren't the first one to do some of the stuff that they did, but they definitely did it better than anybody else. And for a guy who never did a film, that to me is just what amazes me, what he was able to accomplish. And, and again, if, if he didn't have the cinematographer Tolan, if he didn't have the set designer, because their budget wasn't gigantic. So what they did with those sets was amazing. And frankly, the makeup guy, so I, I read something about him. He wasn't a makeup guy. He, he swept the floors in the makeup room. That's who, and Wells went in and saw him doing something with putty and says, do you think you could age me? Guy says, absolutely. And look what he did. The makeup is incredible in this movie. So everything about this movie, the way it came together, I, I love the story. Um, and, and the other thing I love about this, everything is told by somebody's perspective, right? When they do the flashbacks, except for when he said Rosebud, nobody witnessed that. So no one was in the room. Well, and we the, know his that. Butler, his butler no, no, the butler wasn't there. The, the woman, the nurse comes in the room. Nobody's in that room. Didn't and then the at the end. Say, didn't the butler say he heard Rosebud? There is nobody in that room. Even Wells talked about it. He goes, if they're worried about that, then I don't have them. And and at the end, when you find out who Rosebud is, nobody in the movie finds out. But the audience heard him say Rosebud, and the audience knows what Rosebud is. That's it. I love that about the way they booked in that. The audience knows, but the characters don't now, know that. Everybody who's – even I knew what Rosebud – No, I'm not – I'm saying – but I'm saying he, in the film. I know, but I'm just saying even knowing that, seeing how he hid the sled at the beginning, there's a scene where he puts the sled up against right. somebody's chest, right. and his hand is right That's over where the road Thacker. I mean, I get it. But I thought that I thought the butler is the one who heard him no. say it. So no, how he does says he, John, you're, John, you're pretty sentimental, aren't you? I am, yeah. I think well, so. I yeah. thought you were gonna say oh, man. Oh. I don't understand. How did how did any how did anybody know he said that then? That's the that's the point that Wells was making. That's a choice that he made. And he said, look, if you're if if anyone's worried about that or question that, then I haven't done my job. And nobody does because he says that line. Well, I heard it. Well, he's only he's the only one. The nurse is the only one in the room. And then again, at the end, it's not about the sled. It's about his life. At that house of course, in the snow, but, but obviously. The sled is the, the mystery right. solved for hey, us. But I love that we know. John, I have a question for you yes. since you're the expert. I'm not the expert, but I do love this I, movie. I think you know the answer to my question. So, All right. the question is what was the reason um, for the wealth that came to the father and mother to have them give up their son? Because. Well, if you listen to the dialogue, and if you remember, Agnes Moorhead says, uh, uh, the father says, I'll, I'll beat him or I'll hit him or something. And, and Agnes Moorhead says, that's why he's going away because he wanted, he wanted him away from the father and he, and she knew that he wasn't going to get the kind of education in life that this money could provide being there. But so what she won the money. What was they finding? Oh, it was uh, uh, there was a, a card. Uh, uh, someone couldn't pay for the to stay there at the boarding house, and they gave him a deed to a, they thought was a worthless mine, and it ended up the load, uh, the something the load, Colorado load, I the believe. Colorado load. So that's where they got all their money. Yeah, and that line is a hilarious line. I, you know, I'm going to lose a million this year. I'm going to lose a million next year, and I might lose a million later, and I might, uh, I might be broke. Pause. In 60 years, wah, 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 and then it cuts. And by the way, that opening scene. So you're describing Kane. Uh, they're talking about Kane. Then, then it's that montage with Thacker reading the paper every time where, where the paper's trashing Thacker. And, and, and then 
You see Thacker holding the newspaper. He folds it, and there's Orson Welles in the shot. What an introduction. It was like John Wayne in Stagecoach. It was exact kind of uh, entrance. All right, all right, all right. I want to add one thing to that. Yes. You know, I I just want to say about the depth of this script, and it doesn't – I mean, Thacker's obviously the villain, but it's not cheap villainization because at the end, when he's signing over the paper, Thacker's, like, really kind of understanding. Yeah. And he's expressing concern about the country and the depression and all. Yep. And even Geddes, you know, Giddies or whatever, who is the um, the boss, the boss, Jim Giddies. He's like he gives him a chance, right? And I love the scene afterwards when they're um, he's there with Kane's wife, and he goes, "Do you have a right?" He's like, "You know, I'm destroying your husband. I'm destroying your family, but I'll give you. Do you need a ride? I, you know, I have my car. You know, I have my carriage here. I mean, there's." There's a little touches that give, you know, even the quote unquote worst people their um Well one of the things uh one of the things Kale said was it's a comedy. Yeah, it is. I, I think mean, there's funny and, things and in it, but it's not a comedy. I understand, John, yeah, but that's I mean, I mean the point there are there are lots of funny very moments funny. in yes. here. Ironic and funny and 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 you know I just well, well, getting okay, back to Mankowitz, he was the screenwriter. Yes, yes. Yeah. Wells came in as the director and the actor. Right. Well, they collaborated on the script. Well, I think Mankiewicz With Hausman, too. Well, here's the thing, because we see this all the time, right? Do we? Yes. Yes. Um, you know, the writer is the writer. Right. The writer has the screenplay. It should be the writer getting the credit for the screenplay. Well, Wells had a contract. Right. That's right. A, and apparently a lot of the stuff for the... Um, for the theater, the Mercury Players, that he got credit for writing, other people wrote. And I believe Mankiewicz wrote some Mercury Theater plays for him. Mankiewicz was a screw-up, though, just like it portrayed in the movie. Though a lot of that in that Mank movie was false, like right. why he did things. But he was definitely... They did have John Hausman babysitting him. Yeah, who underperformed right. in life. You know, but he was a decent man. And his brother, and I Herman, do recommend, Herman Ma- Ma- no, Herman was, no, like that God. was Herman. And the other one was not so much a decent man. If you read the recent biography to Mankiewicz brothers, you know, but, um, Herman was definitely the more likable of the brothers, you know, and, you know, he's self-destructive and, right. um, and, um, they asked his brother, who was a two-time Oscar winner as well. It's a writer goes, how much, um, do you really think you're, how um, your brother wrote Citizen Kane, and he goes, "If you knew Citizen, if you knew Orson Welles' ego, the fact that my brother's name is even on the film tells you <laughs> that he wrote something." <laughs> but what does that tell you about how he felt about Tolan? Because Ralph, you know, you're Ralph, you're right. On the director's card, credit card, he put Tolan right there. That that doesn't well, happen. That's what I mean. I think, and, yeah. and John, you know the power of a good cinematographer, and I thought Absolutely. about this while this film was happening. That news thing we shot, where you couldn't figure out how I was going right. to. With a right. single camera, get a double camera set thing happen, and you you know, with a good cinematographer, anything can happen. Yeah, I got to gotta say something. My own personal experience, both in advertising and movies, you know, both features and advertising, you would be surprised how many times the cinematographer is essentially directing the movie. You know, I mean, I, oftentimes, even you know, particularly if it's un, you know. Um, Inexperienced directors, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised like actors. I'm not. They, they let the they, they usually direct, kind of direct the actors, which is of course yeah. very important. But setups and things like that, 
in project after project I've worked on since the 90s, you know, in advertising, since the 80s, you know, we get like an art director to direct something and we just give him a really strong cinematographer. Listen, I used director. to go on, I used to go on, and they mentioned, uh, I think Ebert mentioned this. There were times that Orson Welles was confused about scene direction. Right. And I used to go on shoots as the editor of whatever project to help the director figure out scene direction because they're all wrapped up in the creative. And, and you know, that's the important thing. You just have people you can collaborate with. It just so happened that these two, between Toland and, and Orson Welles, it was a beautiful marriage. Oh, my God. Yeah. The, you know, Orson could do all the tricks he wanted to do, and this guy, the digging of the hole, all that stuff, the lighting, all that was those two guys going, how can we make this thing work as best we can? And they, uh, they One other little that, tidbit. I want to throw out one little tidbit. The, that scene at the beginning where they're in the screening room, so that happened because uh, they hadn't gotten the okay to start shooting yet. And uh, they wanted to test it. Tolan and, and Wells wanted to test a few things. So they said, we're just going to do some test reels. So we're just going to use the studio screening room. And what they were doing was actually filming. I mean, they lied. So th they, they started already. And in that scene, Alan Ladd is in that scene. And uh, Joseph Cotton is in that scene as one of the reporters. When you hear the voices, you can definitely hear Joseph Cotton's voice. So he was already, when he started filming, he was already two days ahead of schedule because he said, I'm going to do this just as a test reel. I thought that was really interesting. Well, so. that's in that RKO 281. And I think that uh, he eventually, they went over budget, right? Or they went over time? He, he had to. Have. Well, they, they, I think they did go over budget because Schaefer had to rein him in a little bit. Yeah, um, so. All right. But, I don't. Do we need to rate this American masterpiece classic? I don't think so. Well, no. I mean, I, I don't think this requires it. But I'm I'm excited because you hadn't seen it before. I'm, I'm really glad you liked it because I wasn't yeah, sure. Yeah, I wouldn't. Would. I don't think I would. I think I may. Wa I you know like, I watched. I listened to Ebert's commentary without the which video. is excellent. He's, excellent. He did a great job. He yeah. definitely was. It was good to hear his voice too because he's been dead like nine years now. And this and is I, his I, number. He I puts this as his number one movie too. Ebert. Yeah. And Bogdanovich loved Orson Welles, right? As, yeah. as a kid, he was with him all the time yeah. and all these people. Anybody have anything else you want to say? Anything? Any well, last I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask John, maybe you know, there's a, a story. It's, it's either it really happened, which is totally possible, or it's just an apocryphal story that they started shooting this movie and they started getting dailies and it became very clear that Orson Welles didn't know anything about crossing the line which is what you have to do when you are shooting dialogue from two different sets, yeah. uh, two different uh, shots. Yeah. And so apparently, rather than blow up the whole movie, uh, Toland said to him, do you know what this is? And Orson Welles like, no, I don't, I don't know what that is. And Toland sat down with him for a few hours and explained everything to him and showed him. And then yeah, they went back he and was made on, this amazing movie. He was so. on Dick Cavett. And, oh, okay. and what was happening was uh, they would say, you have to look this way, stage right. left versus, and he goes, no, no, no. Stage right, because he's in from the theater. And gotcha. Tolan's like, no, no, that's not going to work. Well, that then Tolan brought him to his house and said, look, I can teach you everything you need to know in about three and a half hours. And he sat him down. It was after 10 days of shooting, too. And, wow. uh, and he taught him, and that was it. So that's absolutely but true. But if and you notice, 80% of, of this film is just wide shot and people yes. talking within the scene. There right. is, And when you do see that one or two cuts where they cut away, it's right. a little jarring. There's one specifically... Right where they cut to Orson Welles and he's doing this weird smile thing. But most of it is four or five people in a shot layered in there. So you're, you know, the, the director is directing you by whoever's talking and whoever's. That's moving. right. So that's his theater know. background too. Not a lot of close ups. Yeah. And you know, yeah. a lot of, like I said, a lot of 
directors do not understand screen direction. And it blows my mind sometimes when you're on set with these people and you have to explain, no, you've got to do, you know, it's, it's, but I, I mean, we were shooting a video and he's trying to tell me, you know, you got to look this way. I can put the, I go rough. That doesn't make any sense to me. Just trust me. Just trust me. And finally, okay, I'll trust you. And sure enough, it comes out perfect. I like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Yeah. So me and Greg Toland, what can I tell you? Well, I want to say, I want to say one other thing. I didn't, I didn't know that they had made that, I guess Orson Welles had made that comment or it was told, and I can't remember what you said about how, uh, they liked, they wanted the deep focus because that's how, yeah. uh, the, eyes the work. Human eye, yeah. Which of course isn't true. I mean, I, I'm looking, I have to pick a plane of focus to focus on. And, um, that doesn't hurt the movie for me or anything, but I remember that was a specific thing that, um, um, what's it, Alejandro Inuritu said about how he directed The Revenant. Um, which was in 2015 with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. And the whole thing is supposed to be like one shot. And uh, of course the human eye actually doesn't use those lenses, which is why those lenses look spectacular and unusual to us. And the human eye blinks, you know, regularly. So there isn't a continuous visual stream, but the biggest thing was that that year that movie was up for best picture and it lost a spotlight as did the actual greatest movie ever made Mad Max Fury Road. So thank you. I, for knew, I knew you were going to work that like into this podcast. I, I predicted Spotlight was going to win just because it was that type of film. It's but a Mad fine Max movie. Fury Road deserved, deserved it. Yeah. Well, can I say one thing? One person we're leaving out is the editor of this film. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who would later be one of Hollywood's top directors. Robert Wise. Wise. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, you got Tolan, you got Robert Wise, you got Bernard Herrmann, and, you, you know, you got Orson Welles. And, Agnes Moorhead. You know, uh I want to say one thing, because when I was in film school, so many people idolized Orson Welles. And they always said, oh, I want to be like Orson Welles. And I was like, no, you don't. You know, you don't want to peak that early. And to me, Orson Welles is a very sad story. I mean, yes. he constantly worked. He was a larger-than-life legendary character. But, I mean, you look at this. You got this. You got the almost masterpiece of Ambersons. And then what's the next great film as a director is, well... <clears throat> <clears throat> lady from Shanghai, and think about that mirror sequence, which I'm reminded of in Kane when he walks by those mirrors yeah. and has that infinity thing. Yeah. And all I could think was um, Lady in Shanghai. And then what's his next great Hollywood film after that? I mean, he did great work as an actor, was probably Touch of Evil. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. But again, to, to, to the earlier point, he never had total control like he had in this one movie. Yeah. That yeah, was the I mean, difference. The the film that I always kind of come back to uh, for him, and it was a European film um, that he made later in his life, um, especially if you heard like it. Any, uh, no, I was going to say The Chimes at Midnight. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I saw that in the theater. Yeah, it's um, if you have any, you know, you know, affinity for Shakespeare, it's uh, it's pretty amazing, you know, and his his portrayal of Falstaff and how he brings a, basically a, a side character to the foreground. Um, even though Falstaff was in a number of different King Henry uh, of the King Henry plays, um, he brings them to the front. It's really amazing. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something else. I, I, I did want to throw this out here. I don't know if any of you have sat through the, the other side of the wind, uh, which was, I can't get through it. I really liked it. It's bananas, but yeah, what is it is bananas, but whatever is, is actually a little better than that is there's also a kind of a, partner documentary it's a lot about the other side of the wind but just about wells in general it's called the love me when i'm dead 
and um, it's a very prophetic um, uh, title. But if you like Wells or interested in Wells at all, check it out. It's, it's check it's, out the Bogdanovan interviews too. They're yeah. fantastic. Uh, the, the, it's on YouTube. Fantastic. And Great also check out uh, check out the Magnificent Ambersons from A and E in two thousand two. Um, Directed by Alfonso Arau, starring um, Madeline Stowe and Bruce Greenwood, which I haven't seen because what is the point of making that as a television movie? But, did, did he redo it with the original, with the Wells script? It's based on the uh, Wells screenplay and his editing notes and the book that the, the book that uh, L, the Wells was adapting. I just, that one I caused a big rift between Wise and Wells because uh, yeah, Wise was the one that had to chop it up. But I, I, I even think he directed. Did did he direct some of the he new directed, scenes? Yeah, he directed the very. The the, the very Amazing. last part where yeah. they're walking there, Joseph yeah. Cotton and Agnes Moorhead are walking down the, um, uh, the, what do you call it? The, the hallway. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's so tacked on. Yeah. It is almost as jarring as the end of the original Blade Runner theatrical cut where you're like, wait a minute, why is there suddenly sun yeah. and everything's okay? And, and why didn't have a choice. Happened. He had to do it. I mean, it wasn't yeah, like, you know, he didn't and have I mean, a that choice. Was He's an employee. Yeah. You know, according to some people, they were like, look, they were, they were cotton and everyone was trying to sending him telegrams saying, you've got to come home. You've got to come back. You've got to help us out here. And they destroyed the, they destroyed the footage, right? They couldn't assemble it. That's the lost. That's the, yeah. The great American film. Yeah. I mean, supposedly the story is, is that Wells was actually cutting it somewhere in South America that he had this uh, work print sent to him and he was cutting it down there, but then, lost interest there's a bunch of wells films there's like two like one is called i think it's called the deep um that he never he just never finished the adr the whole thing was done he just didn't go back and do the voices in the adr so there's literally like two wells films totally done but he never did the um well he was always looking for money to complete stuff wasn't he well, that was part of it <laughs> so that's why the... when you you watch that <laughs> pretty documentary funny. The maybe he was dead, selling the wine before it. it's time mm. there you go he would take anything he did casino royale just to get the money yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, he would also do, with uh, Bernard Cribbins, by the way. And you know, truthfully, <laughs> Wells's final his his final screen performance it was a voice performance. Transformers. Was, Transformers. The <laughs> <laughs> As uh, Supercron or you want, if you like Orson Wells, check yeah, out uh, the Dick Cavett stuff. It, it, oh, it, I've seen a bunch of that. What a talks. great storyteller! Uh, I mean, I'm just a. Yeah. He really was. Yeah. Jack Lemmon is looking at. That's just incredible. Anyway. T- tells this great story about Winston Churchill. I just definitely check it out. He also apparently met Hitler when he was young. Yeah. That's a great Zelig shot in this movie. Yeah. With Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like All right. Good pick, Ralph. I-, I think I did mention the editing at the front. Um, and that, yeah, whole newsreel, that whole newsreel thing was all B-roll that they had in the studio. Yeah. That they just and the guy who played the reporter did the voice. Yeah. Right. And I love the fact that Robert Wise took pieces of film and rubbed it against the yeah. floor to add the scratches <laughs> to some of that. Stuff. So, a lot of cool editing tricks too in there. Just, so uh, yeah, uh, again, master for me a master class in directing and editing and shooting. I just and acting, fantastic. Okay, acting. Okay, I guess so. But uh, all right, so uh, Chris will not be here next week. So I got you three on the old. Uh, what what's going on uh, now? Oh, the wheel. The, the wheel, wheel of fun. Whoever got you. Let's see. Oh, so there's only four of us in the wheel. Yeah. Debbie again. All right, Debbie. A movie you have not seen. Okay. You need some time to think about that one. I have not a clue as to what. Okay. Well, well, I think well I'm the world gonna... is your oyster then. You can pick anything. How about the rest of the, the boys? 
Oh. Well. You haven't seen it. So. That's not a movie. Should be. You got me there. Yeah. All right. Well, Debbie, come up with something. Let us know in a couple days. I will. All right. Everybody, thank you. Um, that was this fun. This was awesome. I love. Uh, this was a great good, show. Very good. Yeah. If we do say or so ourselves, let's see if anybody subscribes based on this show. Should well, they- I'm I'm on a movie. I'm on a Facebook movie group, and I announced that I don't like to put stuff on there because then everybody does that. But I wrote that we were going to talk about Citizen Kane. And they're all very excited about it. So I'm going to post that and hopefully we'll get some subscriptions for that. I hope. Sounds good. Yeah. So, all right. And by the way, you should subscribe because this is classic. This is classic stuff. So smash a like button. If you like Citizen Kane, smash a like button. And if you know anyone who likes Citizen Kane, share it. There's a few people that like this film, I think. Uh, Except for Pauline Kael. Well, she's a. She liked the film. She just discredited the. Um... She's a hack. <laughs> oh, my God. Pauline Kael is no. Not she a hack. was discredited. No. Her How is she discredited? Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, everybody have a good week. Debbie, hey, you look have forward to your famous pick. Can't wait. Ralph, I'll see you this weekend, I believe. Yep. I'll be up. Oh, reception number two. Debbie, got- you should Debbie, you should pick Batgirl. Can't wait to hear your pick. Batgirl. All right, Ralph, I, I got the beer funnel too, so we're all set. Oh, perfect. Oh God. Yeah. I tell people that story all so much. Thanks. Well, that I almost choked. That I almost died. <laughs> the, yeah. the, everybody there was like so old and doing this. With <laughs> it was pretty really. pathetic, wasn't it, Trip? It was, quite, it it was, was pathetic. It was something. Yeah. Had a good time. Yeah. It was oh, a good did. time. What he remembers. Thank you very much. <laughs> Have a good week. He remembers your wife. <laughs> <laughs> Rosebud.